0: Shalom friends. Hey everybody. Welcome back to Access. My name's Timothy and I'm happy that we could be studying through the scriptures together today. Well, another week, another COVID lockdown here in our province of Ontario, Canada. Our government has enacted another provincial emergency and stay-at-home order this week. Now, some people are taking the order very seriously and they lock themselves at home, except for, you know, the absolute essentials. Um, grocery shopping once every couple of weeks, a visit to the doctor's office or picking up medication, or, or they're, you know, they're allowed to go for that 20-minute social distance walk around the neighborhood block for fresh air and exercise. And there are other people who completely disregard any of the COVID restriction guidelines. They're having large house parties, Running out to socialize with their friends, every opportunity they get, Um, even going out of their way to confront people, you know, who are wearing masks by getting really close face to face, breathing on them, trying to convince you that you're crazy for complying. And still there are others who don't agree with the public health recommendations or the government orders, but they will still comply for whatever reason. Now, what are your reasons for following any sort of law, rule, or command? If somebody directs you to do something, what sort of things do you consider before choosing to follow or not follow? Now, most people will follow what they trust, uh, what makes them comfortable. Do they have enough information, um, or it's based on the relationship that they have with the person or the entity that that's giving the directive. Now, your response could be compliance, obedience, or disobedience. Compliance is only measured by your outward behavior. You know, do you do or not do what's been instructed? And then there's obedience that has more to do with your inward attitude, and it has something to do with uh, submission to an authority. And with disobedience, it's simply you just don't follow the instruction at all. I'd like to share with you the words of a song that my family likes to sing together around the piano. It's a hymn written by John Henry Sammis called Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of his love, until all on the altar we lay, for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Our study today is called Called Out. If you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. Also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. Today, as we continue our study through the book of Genesis, I would suggest that you have a Bible handy to follow along as you listen. I also want to encourage you to take some time to gather and study with your own Axis Church communities or your small groups. Now let's get started. Called out. Today my wife Beverly will be reading from Genesis chapter 11 verse 27 and through to the end of chapter 12 from the complete Jewish Bible.
1: Here is the genealogy of Terach. Terach fathered Avram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died before his father Terach in the land where he was born, in Ur of the Khazdim. Then Avram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. He was the father of Milcah and of Yiscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terach took his son Avram, his son Haran's son Lot, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Avram's wife, and they left Ur of the Khazdim to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they stayed there. Terak lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Chapter 12 Now Adonai said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen and away from your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Avram went as Adonai had said to him, and Lot went with him. Avram was seventy-five years old when he left Haran. Avram took his wife Sarai, his brother's son Lot, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, as well as the people they had acquired in Haran. Then they set out for the land of Canaan and entered the land of Canaan. Avram passed through the land to the place called Shechem, to the oak of More. The Canaanites were there in the land. Adonai appeared to Avram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Adonai, who had appeared to him. He left that place, went to the hill east of Bethel, and pitched his tent. With Bethel to the west and I to the east, he built an altar there, and called on the name of Adonai. Then Avram traveled on, continuing toward the Negev. But there was a famine in the land, so Avram went down into Egypt to stay there, because the famine in the land was severe. When he came close to Egypt and was about to enter, he said to Sarai his wife, Here now, I know that you are a good-looking woman, so that when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and kill me, but keep you alive. Please say that you are my sister, so that it will go well with me for your sake, so that I will stay alive because of you. When Avram entered Egypt, the Egyptians did notice that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's princes saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Avram well for her sake, giving him sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But Adonai inflicted great plagues on Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Avram's wife. Pharaoh called Avram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my own wife? Now therefore here is your wife, take her and go away. So Pharaoh gave orders concerning him to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had."
0: Looking back at Genesis chapter 11 and starting at verse 10, we see the genealogy of Shem, the son of Noach. Shem's line was known as the line of promise, because through Shem's line comes Avram. And in verse 26, we see the genealogy starting from Terach, Avram's father. And it goes into a little bit more detail about who Terach was, the land that he was living in, and we learn more about who all his children are and grandchildren. According to Rabbi J.H. Hertz, the main purpose of the first book of the Torah is giving a complete account of the founders of the Hebrew race, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their children. And Avram is actually traced back through ten successive generations to Shem, the son of Noach. Interestingly, halfway through those generations between Noah and Avraham, at the fifth generation there was one fellow named Peleg. And Peleg means division, to split off from, or to separate. And during this time, we find that there's this massive rift in amongst the clans and the nations that were emerging at this time. And it was through Peleg's line where the line of promise continued all the way down to Avram. There was something that I noticed as I was preparing this particular study, and it had to do with the life expectancy. From Adam all the way down to Noah, the life expectancy was about 900 years shem who was born before the flood lived for 600 years all the generations following shem between him and peleg the life expectancy was about 450 years or so and at this point of division of the nations where peleg's generation was he only lived 239 years and all the generations after that we see the life expectancy getting shorter and shorter avram ended up living only 175 years. Okay, so as you could tell by now, I'm a little bit of a nerd and I get excited about all these genealogies that I see and all the patterns that I see there as well uh, when I read through the scriptures. But what I find really cool is simply knowing that Noah was still alive when Avram was born 10 generations later. And what's even cooler is that Shem was still alive at the time that Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov were all born, 12 generations from the flood. And of course, the Bible is filled with significance through the patterns and numbers. 10 generations, 12 generations, there's got to be something there. Chapter 12 begins with a Hebrew phrase, Lech Lecha. And this is God speaking to Avram, and he's essentially saying, Go, go already, get yourself out. He's saying, get yourself out of your country, away from your family, away from your dad's house, and you're going to go to the land that I show you. According to Acts chapter 7, God had originally called Avram while he was still living in the land of Ur. So was this a repeated call to Avram when he was 75 after Terach had died? Or does chapter 12 just begin this way because it's the telling of Avram's story? You know, whatever the case, we know that God initially called Avram out of his homeland of Ur, when he would have been about 70 years old, prior to leaving and winding up in Haran with his father Terach. We learn from the end of chapter 11 that Terach took Avram, Sarai, and Lot with him out of Ur to go to the land of Canaan. And it's unclear exactly why Terach was taking them to Canaan in the first place. It's unlikely that as a father that he would just uproot his own family because of his son Avram, who received this call from God whilst still in Ur. So what's significant about their homeland, Ur? Well, for starters, it's in the region of Mesopotamia, in the same land where the Babylonian empire was established, and now it's modern-day Iraq. And this place was filled with pagan worship and just idol worship everywhere. Terach himself was known to to be a builder of these idols, and his house was filled with them. It's no wonder that God gave the command to Noah, Lech lecha, go, go forth. You see, God here, he's calling Avram to hurriedly leave his family roots, both geographically and religiously. So although Terach went part of the way to Canaan, and then he decided to settle in Haran, God chose to use Avram to go the whole way to Canaan. You see, partial obedience isn't a little bit of obedience. It's disobedience. And here we see that pattern of God dividing, electing, and separating the faithful members of Avram's family from the unfaithful. So what we read here in verses 2 and 3 are actually the terms of God's forever covenant with Avram. And there's five parts to it. 1. God will make Avram and his descendants a great nation. 2. God will bless Avram. Avram himself will be a blessing. 3. God will bless those who bless Avram, and God will curse those who curse Avram. 4. God will make the Shem, the name, or the reputation of Avram, great. And five, God will use Avram to bless all the families of the earth. Wow! Can you imagine if you were Avram and God was promising you all this wonderful stuff? Now it's interesting because when God told Avram all this, that he'd be the father of these great nations and everyone's going to be blessed because of him, well, Avram had no kids. He was already in his 70s, right? And we're told in chapter 11 that his wife Sarai was, was still barren up to this point, and they were well beyond the years of childbearing. But, friends, if God says he's going to do something, you better believe he's going to do just that. Now, we really got to spend some time talking more about covenant, it's very important. So, what is covenant exactly? Let's start with the Hebrew word for covenant, which is brit. Then brit comes from the Hebrew root word, bra, which means to cut or divide. Um, that's why sometimes we still say, hey, let's cut a deal, right? And it's loosely translated in Greek as the word diatiki. And in English, that is testament. And because there's no direct parallel to the concept of brit in Greek or English, Um, Christians have adopted the belief to be equivalent to this concept of a will, as in a last will and testament. And it's for this reason that we've come to use the English word testament to describe the two halves of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that in itself is just downright inaccurate. You see, culture and language, they come together as a package right and within any given culture there's there's a number of traditions and ideas and and just basic societal concepts that that are unique to that culture and and therefore foreign to all other cultures so it's really important that we're able to grasp the concept of burit from a hebrew perspective you see there's a number of defining characteristics of a biblical covenant um a Biblical covenant is a permanent thing, unless God specifies that it's conditional. And the penalty for breaking a biblical covenant was very severe. Usually it was death. But most importantly, a God-made biblical covenant literally became a physical law of the universe, such as gravity or the speed of light or the laws of thermodynamics. And in fact, you know, the Hebrews themselves, they acknowledge this because berit, their word for covenant, was also used to mean the laws of nature. Now stick with me here, okay? The spiritual realm is the source of a God-made covenant because God is spirit, right? So when God makes a covenant with his creation in our physical universe, that covenant that's from the spiritual realm It's woven into the very fabric of both space and time and it affects how the universe operates. Here's a detailed example of the God principle of covenant. When God first made the universe and then mankind, we're we're told that there was no death. And the laws of the universe were were such that everything that was created, you know, it was meant to exist forever. But somewhere along the line, we, we know that that changed right? And the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly um, or answer all of our questions about creation and death and decay. But we are told that death entered the world when Adam and Havah first sinned. That death doesn't apply to the sun, the moon, the stars, and, and even our planet Earth. The Bible uses the term death to mean the end of life. So if there's no life, then there can be no death. In other words, only living things die. So if the fall of man didn't initiate the decay of the universe, then what did? Well, the answer might surprise you a little bit. All right, hang on to your seats here. The event that started the universe decaying is the very thing that Adam's fall was patterned after, the fall of Lucifer a.k.a. the adversary, or Hasatan, the devil. And we know that Hasatan's fall occurred before Adam's fall, because remember, he was exiled already to, the, to planet Earth by the time that Adam was created. So Hasatan's crime of pride and rebellion against God, this occurred where? In the spiritual realm, not in the physical realm. But you see, the Bible, it indicates that until Lucifer sinned against God, that there was no evil in the spiritual realm. And like so many other spiritual matters, this one had its effects on the physical world as well. Hasatan's fall initiated a change in the way that the whole universe operates. You see, when he was kicked out of heaven and banished to this earth with his band of angels, uh, he, he brought sin with him. And the universe was already decaying by the time that Adam and Hava were created and placed on this earth. And then he infects them. He essentially infected them with sin by, by tempting them. And that ends up bringing death to all living things. So suddenly, all of a sudden, the whole universe, everything except the spirit realm, was decaying. You see logic would lead us to conclude then that this dimension of time began at the point of Hassatan's rebellion because the measurement of time is decay. So if there's no decay, then there's no time, right? And when scientists speak of our universe aging, well, that's what they mean. They mean that everything right down to the atomic level is deteriorating, that everything in the universe is aging. And not only the physical universe was affected, but spiritually, things also changed. You see, evil was unleashed, and it needed to be dealt with, because evil pollutes perfection. And sin defiles God's personal holiness. So a savior had to be prepared to save man from complete annihilation. And the abyss had to be prepared to imprison their leader of evil, Hasatan, at the appropriate time and angels would eventually become warriors you see because sin had entered the world death entered the world first the fall of hasatan initiates the decay of of the inanimate objects and then the fall of man initiates the decay of living creatures see prior to all this there would have been no need for a line of promise that we're studying about There wouldn't have been a need for an immaculate conception or a horrendous crucifixion. And today we wouldn't be warning people about Armageddon if it weren't for this evil that began this death spiral of all things existing in our universe. Now what would happen if a biblical covenant was broken? Like what if God just one day decided to remove gravity as a physical law of the universe? Gravity is so much more than just a force that keeps our feet stuck to the earth. No, the earth in relation to the moon and the sun and how all that affects the seasons and and the temperatures and the weather and, and how it affects the life cycles of photosynthesis with plant life and how that supports all life on earth. I mean, like if you take gravity away, then that connection, it's just completely broken. What if God simply decided one day to just abolish gravity? You see, there would be this chain reaction of monumental proportions that would begin, wouldn't it? And the way that the universe operates would be completely different. These biblical covenants are universal laws, okay? If you change one, then many others are also affected because, you see, they all work together. None of them are accidental. Like, God knows what he's doing, okay? And none of them operate independently from each other. So when God makes a covenant, the spiritual and physical universes are never the same again. So when God makes these covenants and he wants to communicate that with man, it's, it's really got to be in terms that man is able to understand. So God creates this kind of covenant system. It's physical and, and visible and tangible in a way that, that man is able to recognize and understand the terms and the impacts of god's promises one of the oldest and most primitive ways of creating a covenant between two people was called cutting a covenant and the hebrew brit literally means cutting or dividing remember so each representative of the parties that were coming in agreement would actually cut their arm with a knife and then they'd hold out their their bleeding arms together and allow those bleeding wounds to kind of mingle. And th- it would signify the mixing of blood. And in some cultures, this blood was actually sucked out from each other's wounds and, and ingested by the opposite party. So it's like a blood oath, these solemn oaths that they're swearing, and it invoked the name of uh, whichever god the participants were worshiping because the covenant was sacred. So in all cases, there was blood and a god that was at the center of that ceremony. As time passed, um, there was a different rite that appeared. And this one involved cutting up animals instead of humans themselves. And generally, this cutting meant that they wouldn't just slash the animal and let some blood spew out. No, they literally had to take the animal and cut it up. Literally dividing it into halves or into several pieces, and then they'd be laid out on the ground, all these animal pieces, into two sides, and the participants of the covenant would both walk in between all these animal pieces laid out on the ground, while swearing an oath to their God. Blood was integral in covenant making, because covenants were deemed to be a life fellowship, and life was in the blood. In the covenant, it was a lifelong thing where the participants considered themselves to be joined together, almost as one flesh, under whatever the terms were that that covenant demanded. And since blood was involved in making a covenant, it was understood that this covenant was a very serious matter, and it was never to be entered into lightly. Remember, the usual penalty for breaking a covenant was death. As you could probably tell by now, there was a lot of pomp and ceremony surrounding the establishment of these covenants. Typically, salt and bread would be eaten together as the final event of this covenant ceremony. And the participants that would eat together this meal, um, it signifies that they were completing the covenant and they were forming this new family type of relationship. So salt had become this important part of the transaction that making a covenant was sometimes called a covenant of salt. (laughs) Whenever you see the use of the word salt in the scriptures or the New Testament, understand that the Hebrew author is referring to an issue of great holiness in relation to a covenant or a sacrifice. Wow, okay, that was a lot that we just covered. Thank you for hanging in there with me through it all. But now that we're armed with a better understanding of what covenant is and what it looks like and what its purposes are, let's go back to the terms of the covenant that God made with Avram. Okay? Understanding that this wasn't a conditional covenant, but it was a permanent covenant. So by definition, this covenant is forever. So right there at the beginning of chapter 12, We see God telling Avram that he'd become a great nation, that Avram would be blessed and himself be a blessing, that Avram's name would be great, that Avram would bless all the families of the earth, and perhaps most importantly, that God would bless those who bless Avram and curse those who curse Avram. Now these promises of the covenant are still in full effect. They're not obsolete. Remember, this is a forever covenant. So who's blessing Avram and who's cursing him today? Everything that God had promised Avram through this covenant was passed down to his son, specifically Yitzhak, and then to his son, Yaakov, who later became known as Israel. So everything that was originally given to Avram was inherited by Israel. All the covenant promises, everything. In Genesis 12:3, God stated, "'I will bless those who bless you, "'but I will curse anyone who curses you.'" And since Israel inherited God's covenant with Avram, The you in this covenant is Israel. See, that's just a biblical fact. It's not political or anything like that. So those who stand with Israel will be blessed and favored by God. But those who oppose Israel will be regarded lightly by God and will be judged for their disobedience. So here's a question we got to ask ourselves. Do you stand up for Israel and for the Jewish people? Do you pray for them, that that God would protect them and, and bring peace to their homeland? We should also be praying for the Palestinian people to have a better life, but a better life that cannot include being given land that belongs to Israel. Now, I want to be clear here that supporting Israel, it doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they do. They're just people, and many of them are atheists, in fact. And often they're not walking with God, and sometimes that leads to really terrible decision-making by their government. Supporting Israel also doesn't mean worshipping the state of Israel. It doesn't mean worshipping the Jewish people, or adopting all of the Jewish traditions and declaring them to be above reproach. But rather, we are to come alongside them, and help them, comfort them, love them, you know, show them respect. We should encourage them to do what's right in God's eyes and encourage them to return to Jehovah and remind them that all these promises that God gave them entitles them to their land inheritance and to retain their title as God's chosen people. Friends, if we can't appreciate the significance of this God-made permanent covenant with Israel and disregard it as irrelevant or null and void, then we aren't blessing Israel. In fact, there are too many Christians today that completely reject Israel and selfishly believe that they are now the replacement recipient of all God's covenant promises made to the Hebrew nation. And living with this mentality is actually cursing the people of the promise. And what did God promise to do to those who curse His chosen people? And from all that we've been learning in this study, What are the severe consequences of breaking a God-made biblical covenant? If this wasn't important, I wouldn't have spent the last 20 minutes just talking about the importance and the gravity of these God-made biblical covenants. Friends, we mustn't take this lightly. Supporting and blessing Israel is a matter of life and death. And God wraps up his covenant promise in the end of verse 3 where he says, And by you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the gospel message right there. Avram's story continues at the age of 75, and we see him departing from the land of Haran, which was in modern day Turkey, where Terach had settled due to the luxuries and the richness of the land by the river Euphrates. After his father Terach had died, Avram continues on the initial journey that they set out on to Canaan five years prior. And he takes his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot, along with a bunch of their servants and their cousins, this whole entourage that they had accumulated along the way. Remember, Canaan was the son of Ham, who was cursed by his angry grandpa, Noach. So Avram and his clan start making their way down in the direction of the land of Canaan. And this was taken about 350 years after the Great Flood. So millions of people were now filling the earth. God had led Avram through much of the land, which was now greatly populated by Kenani before they came to a specific spot called Shechem. Shechem is a place that's now known as Nablus, a city currently under Palestinian control in the West Bank. So they get to Shechem, and we're told in verse 7 that Adonai appeared to Avram, now this is a very rare thing for this to happen, but God wanted to make it very clear to him what he was about to tell him. He said, to your descendants, I will give this land. In Hebrew, it's lizer Acha, which is literally to your seed, I'll give this land. Appropriately, Abram responds by building an altar there and sacrificing to Yehovah, God. Apparently, Avram leaves this place with his clan and moves a little further south, about 25 miles, and he pitches his tent on a hill between Betel and Ai, and there he ends up building another altar and sacrifices again to Yehovah. And then some unspecified time later, we see him carry on to Negev. So we know that his family, his whole clan, is traveling further and further south, since Negev is Hebrew for south and they're entering deeper and deeper into this desert. Now, when they reach Negev, there's famine in the land, and the famine was very severe. You're probably wondering at this point, well, why is he moving so much? Why doesn't he just settle down somewhere? Well, it's important to note that the travel back then involved a lot of danger. You didn't just get up and move. It was always difficult, always dangerous. And you're not just moving by yourself you know, and traveling through airports. No, you had to like make your way through the lands. The first patriarchs, their constant movements always had to do more with this never ending search for new water and pasture. Remember that they were owner of herds and flocks, right? So they needed to find all this stuff to keep going. Now, we don't know how much time actually passed from the time that Avram had entered the land of Canaan uh, to to coming to the southern end of it in the Negev. But apparently the conditions just got worse and worse and there was full-blown famine that threatened his family's survival. So he makes this decision that he would very soon regret uh, to go into that land of Egypt to seek relief from the famine. Before entering Egypt, Avram turns to his wife and makes sure that she knows how beautiful she is. But of course, this was for his own interest. He was really saying, um, honey, I know that you're a good looking woman, but when these Egyptians see you, they might say, hey, this is that guy's wife. Why don't we kill him? And then they'll take you for themselves." Have you ever gotten nervous before crossing a border and going through border patrol or immigration services? Like, you need to have your plan. You need to know what you're going to say. And that's essentially what's happening with Avram and Sarai before they head into Egypt. He says, please, say that you're my sister so that it will go well with me for your sake and so that I will stay alive because of you. What a sweet guy, huh? (laughs) But in all fairness to Avram, he, he sought out his own initiative to take care of his future, thinking that he could assist God in fulfilling... His promises. And to say that Sarai was his sister was a lying half-truth. You see, Sarai was actually Avram's half-sister from another mother. At 65 years old, she was also beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that the Egyptian officials did indeed take notice of her right away. And they brought her straight to their monarch. And believe it or not, she became part of the Pharaoh's harem. So here they are, husband and wife in this new strange land. And, um, you know, there's Sarai in the harem and there's Avram and he gets all this extra sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and male and female slaves. And he gets all these camels. He was really being treated well as a brother of Sarai. But in verse 17, we see something really strange go on here. You see, the separation of Avram and Sarai was critical enough to evoke Adonai's personal and dramatic intervention, and he ends up bringing plagues against Pharaoh's house. And somehow the plagues uncovered the deceit of Avram for Pharaoh. And this monarch of Egypt humiliates Avram with his questions. He goes, what is this that you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Dude, why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. And this line of questioning was showing more character than Avram gave him credit for. And so the Pharaoh ends up sending Avram out of his country. He says, listen, go, take all your stuff. Take your sheep, take your cattle, take your slaves, and just get out of my country. Take your wife. Chapter 12 ends in verse 20, where Pharaoh commands his men to escort Avram, his wife, and all their belongings out of the country. Avram's lie brought him and his extended family to the shameful exit from Egypt, one which the servants must have been talking about among themselves for a long time, with some loss to Avram's integrity and his reputation in their eyes. Can you imagine? There have been a number of times in my own life where I would pray to God for guidance and direction, and for wisdom and discernment, so that I could walk in His way and and to do His will. And I'd get these very clear promptings in my spirit, so I'd start on that path that He's showing me to walk. And sure, there have been some times where I grew impatient, and I'd end up taking matters into my own hands. Rather than allowing God to order my steps, I'd end up getting in the way and making some pretty poor decisions, and I'd end up compromising my integrity. So when I read this story of Avram, I see him wanting to walk in obedience with God. I mean, he had faith and he believed God's covenant promise. And he too made some questionable decisions along the way. So I find comfort in knowing that even though we might mess up and make bad choices, God can work with our choices and he'll straighten us up and he'll get us set back on the right path friends whatever's going on in your life today i'm praying that you will have your spiritual eyes open to what god has planned for you to do i'm praying that your spiritual ears will hear his message and the voice of his spirit guiding you along your faith journey i'm praying that your heart will desire god's will and be made willing to submit in obedience to god's authority i'm praying that in your soul you'll decide to continually seek truth And let God grow your faith as you choose to live for him and his kingdom purposes. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. It's always a joy to be able to get around God's word and learn more about his plans and his purposes, and about his amazing love and his promises. I'm so excited to see where he's going to lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen.